Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Ken Gee. Thank you for having me. Ken, great to have you here. You've been at this game of multifamily investing and value add for quite some time. For those who don't know you, maybe spend a minute, give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Sure, absolutely. So I started uh, back in Toledo, Ohio, where I grew up, came to Cleveland in 1991, uh, worked for Deloitte for a while, for seven years as a CPA, mostly on the tax side, spent five years as a commercial lender. The number one thing that I heard from my clients, both at Deloitte and at the bank when I was a lender, was real estate, real estate, real estate. Um, the Cleveland plat practice at Deloitte happened to have a huge real estate practice. So uh, I got to see firsthand, you know, lots of folks doing extremely well. And uh, I don't know how much you know about how hard CPAs work, but they work pretty hard. And uh, so I decided that, uh, you know, this is, this is too much. I'm working for everybody else. So I made that entrepreneurial jump into real estate, um, bought our first asset in 1997, uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, we decided that Florida had uh, much better opportunities than the Cleveland market did just because of the demand supply. So we set up shop in uh, central Florida. And uh, now we've uh, got a couple thousand units that we take care of throughout those markets. And, uh, and we continue to grow throughout all those markets. I love that story. And certainly there's no question Florida has gone through a tremendous amount of growth. They're, they're traditional Rust Belt to Sun Belt migration that everyone talks about is absolutely real. Mm-hmm. And Florida is an, an interesting market because certainly up and down the coast, you got a massive coastline. Uh, if you're on the water, there's a certain set of value. You go a couple of blocks inland and the values plummet. And then you go back into the core of the state and all of a sudden you find these pockets, these communities where values have gone up again. So it's, it's very hyper-local. It, it is. It is. Although I would tell you that right now, throughout all the markets that we operate, it is really hard to find a market that's not growing considerably. And what, what we find happen, if you take Tampa, you take Orlando, you take Jacksonville, Tallahassee, any of those markets, and what you what you see happen is as the prices elevate in, in near the core part of the market, you see people, it's literally just growing outward in bands. And uh, so you can always get ahead of that growth. And, and sort of let it catch up to you, if, if you will, if that makes sense. One of the phenomenon that's exists in a lot of cities uh, nationwide is there's been that outward growth that you talked about. And then there's been this band in the middle, uh, kind of almost the missing middle, if you will, that has been neglected for 20, 30 years, has maybe decayed a little bit. Sometimes it stays in that state and sometimes it gets redeveloped. And because it's close to the core, there's opportunity to get significant value increase just due to that proximity to the core because it's been forgotten. You're, you're absolutely right. That is exactly what happens and what makes it even more possible in, in Florida. So you, some markets, you have to be careful when you do that because if everybody doesn't follow the same story that you are, you can be one asset in the middle of that market that is trying to change the market, but you can't do it all by yourself. You have to be part of that overall groundswell, I call it, that as long as everybody else is 
agreeing with your business plan and coming into that market and doing the same thing, the whole market rises together. I've seen people try to do it just with one property in an area and just they're the only ones that are drinking that Kool-Aid at the time. Just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it works in Florida for the reasons that I just described. I mean, the demand is just continuing to, uh, to, to continuing to increase. Uh, absolutely. A good example of that one that comes to mind is North Miami. That's a, at the moment, a little bit of a war zone, uh, you know, between the, the, the downtown and you go, you know, further north and you get into some much more affluent communities. But there's a band in the middle that I certainly wouldn't try and do, wouldn't try and turn on a small scale. It would require a significant amount of scale to turn those neighborhoods. It would, yeah. So we don't know North Miami. We're not operating in that in that particular market. But you're absolutely right. That you're right. You can't try to do it by yourself. You've got to make sure that everybody else has the same idea that you do, and then everybody goes into that market and changes it at the same time. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And I've seen those those opportunities fail. I've seen those uh, plans fail. Not in North Miami, but in other markets, I've seen it sort of sort of fail because they were the only person that really thought that this was going to be a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Now. The market has changed a lot over the last several years. You talk about cap rate compression. There's some C-class assets selling for not much of a discount compared to B&A assets, which makes no sense at all. Um, what are you seeing in the market? What strategies make sense? How much value can create? Can you create? If you have a 40-year-old building and you put a fresh coat of paint, now it's a still a 40-year-old building with a fresh coat of paint. Yeah, how so much- go, go ahead. I'm sorry. How much value can you create and and what are the strategies that work today? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So it this is when you really got to understand how you're going to add value, what your asset is like now, how it's going to compete with some of the newer assets. For example, if you're looking at a 60s, early 70s product and it, it it's functionally on its way to being obsolete, you, you got to be careful with that because there's some things in a building you just can't change. So you're going to want to steer clear of those. Those are harder to do your value add plans. But if you've got an asset that was well designed in the beginning, it's just older and it's behind the market in terms of rents and 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 its amenity package, as long as you can make those changes, um, you can absolutely get, uh, you know, C, C minus, uh, now assuming good neighborhood, let's start there because we generally don't play in tougher neighborhoods because it is a lot more difficult to do that in a tougher neighborhood. But if we've got a C, C minus asset in a B neighborhood, we can then bring it up, add amenities, make it somewhat competitive. So what we try to do is we try to break out the market in terms of tiers. You have your top tier assets, you have your middle tier, and then you have your lower tier assets. And we try to make sure that we can move that asset from one tier to the next. Usually in our world, it's usually from that lower tier to the next tier up and fill this a gap because what we're finding happen is happening is we have these higher the higher end new luxury apartments that are built at you know, three to 4,000 a month. And then there's a massive gap between that and the next level quality. And we love to take those assets and use make that asset and improve that asset, improve the amenity package, and use that to fill that gap because people want a really nice place to live. They just can't quite get to the higher level, that higher tier property. So we're finding a ton of opportunities to fill that gap because that gap exists everywhere. Because when you think about Florida, there's about a thousand plus people moving into the state every day. A few of those people can afford that really high end stuff, but most people are looking for, they're just ordinary people looking for, you know, regular type of housing. And they really don't want that lower tier asset. They want the stuff in the middle. 
And so that's why we've been so successful trying to fill that gap with our improvements to our properties. Well, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned that because that lower tier is you're selling to a tenant base, uh, your customer, so to speak, that extra $50 or even $100 a month is outside their affordability. So even if you add the amenities, that extra 50 bucks a month makes a difference and, and they will move for 50 bucks a month. Whereas if you're going after that middle tier where they have a rough budget, but it's not that tight, they they can afford the extra 50 bucks a month or an extra 100 a month. They say, wow, you know, these two properties side by side, this one's got an amazing fitness room. It's got an amazing pool. Uh, I can really see myself living there. It's not just about the four walls in the apartment itself. That's exactly right. Now, in Florida, what's happening is we have people coming down from the Northeast. As I'm sure you know, those people are used to much higher rents. They're, so they're able to keep their earnings because now maybe they can work remotely or whatever. But now, now the rents that we're getting to f- that fills that gap is very affordable to them. So our typical resident isn't someone who's moving from that lower, the resident themselves isn't moving from the lower tier to the middle tier. In, in all, most of our markets, we're filling the needs for people coming into the state and they can afford that. And that's, so, you know, it's that old adage, old adage that if you build it, they will come. That's exactly what's happening. They're coming. We just have to build it so that they have a place to go. So a lot of New York and a lot of Boston accents is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And the Midwest, yep, Ohio, Pennsylvania, all all those markets, because people, they, they now are, try, they're, they're trying to escape the high tax states is really what they're doing. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, we've seen that trend. I mean, we see the same thing happening in Texas as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, the migration, uh, Interstate 10 from Los Angeles is, uh, is a well-worn path. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I call it the one-way uh, the one-way trip from the northeast to the southeast, and uh, we're, that, that's why we're there, quite honestly, because I can't find that. De- there's only a few markets that I can find that demand-supply uh, equation the way I can in Florida, the way I can in Texas. We're not in Texas, but you're right. Texas has the exact same setup, especially in the B.C. class base because they can't afford to build B.C. stuff. Exactly. exactly. So now we have increasing demand, no new supply. The rent, The price has to go up. It just automatically happens. So let's talk a little bit about rent growth. I'll just throw one statistic at you. Jacksonville, uh, rents are up 27% since the start of the pandemic. Uh, Apart from the simple answer, supply and demand, what's Mm -hmm. driving it? Well, it's demand and supply. That's exactly what's driving it. Um, uh, That and when, when you look at the big markets in Florida, you, you know, Miami, very expensive, Tampa, Orlando, it, it used to be pre-pandemic. Orlando was the most expensive. Then you go to Tampa. Then you go to Jacksonville. So what happens is people want to be in the in the nice climate. They want to have all of the same things that they can get in Florida. But now they start to go to Jacksonville because it's more affordable than it is in Tampa. People went to Tampa over maybe over Orlando because of affordability. So that and remember, you're using a percentage. So Jacksonville's rents were generally lower than Tampa and Orlando. So um, now here's what I here's what I don't think will happen. I don't think that you're going to see 27 percent next year and the year after that. That's that's not going to happen. So you have to be really careful when you're buying in these markets. If you're plan if you're going to buy an asset that doesn't have this value add component, no problem. You just have to be prepared to wait longer for the rents to to just organically grow uh, in those markets because I mean you're you're not going to get 20 25 percent bumps year after year. You're just not gonna it's not going to happen. 
Well, I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked myself and asked one of my mentors, George Ross, yesterday. I ask you the same question. As you're putting together your performance, I'm imagining that you're going to put a 10-year forecast together. This time last year, you probably would have just followed the usual rule and put a 2% rent escalation for the next 10 years. What are you doing now? We've had 6.1% inflation declared by the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Are you putting 6%? Are you putting 2 Are you what? How do you forecast? Yeah, great, great question. So when we're in the value add space, so the first year or two, maybe three, we're going to have outsized rent growth. And it's not because the market, I'm not counting on market growth. What I'm using for the first year or two is just the value that we're going to create. So usually in year one, year two, we're seeing significant growth for that particular property. That's your forced appreciation. Absolutely. Past that, we're sticking with 2%. I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect those markets to continue to grow at 6%. If they do, that's fantastic because our, our goal with our investors is to under-promise, over-deliver, right? That that's always should be your goal and prepare them for 2% growth. And if we get better, fantastic. That's great. The other thing we don't do, we generally model out five years because we're value-add investors. We never intend to hold 10 years. We can if we need to, but that's not our intent. Our intent is to go in at our value, leave some for the next guy because some the next guy or gal has to have a good reason to want to buy the asset. And then, and then we generally turn it, especially in a fund environment. We're not doing 1031s. We're not doing anything like that. So most of our investors like to see that turn. They like to um, you know, turn, you know, good velocity with their equity is what they like to see. Um, and, and so that's what our modeling goes out, five years. Okay, well, then that raises the question from in terms of how much value add are you creating? Because your other exit could, could be an interim exit. It could be a refinance mm-hmm. where you're pulling equity off the table, which, of course, is not a taxable event. And if you can pull all your chips off the table, return the capital to investors, still have a reasonable debt-to-equity ratio, now you've got asymmetric risk. You have no cash tied up in the deal you've got reasonable equity. What are you going to buy to replace it that's going to be better than that? Well, we're going to take that money and we're going to go find another value-add deal and try to do the same thing. Or another two, maybe. Well, hopefully, right, right, exactly. The challenge here, though, is finding those deals because it's no secret that, um, you know, the reason we're doing a blind pool fund is because we're in a very competitive market. Most of the buyers in this market are syndicators. So that means the seller has to agree to let you tie up his deal while you go raise the money. We put the equity in front of the deal, which makes us more competitive. So even in that environment, it is still very difficult to get the deals that you're trying to get. You really have to be well networked on the ground and really bring strong offers that with, you know, with very high certainty of close in order to get the deal. So that's the challenge. The challenge is finding the deal right now that makes sense because there's always, not always, but there are many people looking to invest in that market and their goals are not necessarily the same as ours. They may be 1031 buyers trying to protect their tax, you know, trying to trying to protect their money. They don't want to pay the tax, so they're willing to pay more than we would. So we're it's an ultra competitive uh, environment. So that's the biggest challenge is finding those replacement assets to continue on with the business plan. So you have the advantage of velocity because you've got the cash sitting there ready to go. Mm-hmm. The 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 downside of the fund model, if there is one, is that while the money's sitting in your bank account, it's earning zero. So you've got to be sure that you didn't raise too much money because otherwise you're under unreasonable pressure to deploy and maybe buy things that don't necessarily meet your criteria simply to meet 
make that money go to work. Yeah, that that's a good point. Now, in our fund, we we raise initially commitments and we call the capital as we need it. And every investor that we meet with that we allow into our fund, I have a, a personal discussion with them about patience. All right. We're going it, it's important to me that we try to hit home runs on every single deal. Because if we fall short, I want it to be a triple or double. I can go find singles all day long, but if one of them fails, then well, you know what happens if you don't if you don't get on on base. So we have that discussion with our investors and try to set their expectations right up front because that's really important, right? When we're when we're in this game, we want our investors and our goals to to really mesh together so that they understand, hey, this is what's going to happen in this fund. This is Ken. Ken's going to make sure that we're not making investments that don't make any sense just for the sake of deploying the capital. And, you know, it's a discussion, it's an ongoing discussion that we have with them because it's my goal to really deliver good returns for them, not just deploy their capital and hope that we can let ourselves organically grow out of something that we overpaid for. Right. No, I love that. I love your strategy and and that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Well, Ken, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Sure. So I'll, I'll plug my little free book here real quick, kripartners.com slash ebook. The title of the book is Multifamily Real Estate's a Total Game Changer. I wrote it myself. It's free. You can download it. I talk about two things. The first thing is everybody, that's the number one question that people face in this business. And that is everybody knows that there's a ton of money to, to make in real estate. They're just trying to figure out how it fits into their life. So in the first part of the book, I go through this analysis, this brain exercise of analyzing your life and figuring out how does this really fit? And most of the time people should end up with a passive investor uh, role in terms of, you know, they've got great day jobs, they're physicians, they're attorneys, you know, they shouldn't just give that up to go to real estate. So then the second part of the book helps them understand how to vet sponsors like us. How, you know, how does our business really work so that you can understand what makes people like us do what we do and what kind of things do you want to watch out for? So we try to give them some insight into how to vet the, the sponsor world. Um, we're, we're fully vetted. By the way, I don't know if you ever heard of veravest.com. I'm not here to plug them, but what's important is that they serve a huge, huge role in this whole private uh, equity uh, model in that, you know, they've come in, looked under the hood, ticked and tied our entire 23 years of track record. And I think that's super important. And that's why, you know, I like to get into this vetting of sponsors, because the one thing that will make this whole model fail is if you get a bunch of bad actors out there raising money and not not being honest with folks. So I'm super big on vetting sponsors and and uh, all of that. So it's again, it's kripartners.com slash ebook. And again, it's free. You just have to give me your email. Then, then I get to talk to you hopefully a little more often. Fantastic. Well, Ken, thank you for the perspective and for the listeners at home. Definitely connect with Ken at, KR, at kripartners.com and get the free ebook at kripartners.com slash ebook. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. 